I'm going to reveal how unscholarly economists really are in comparison to the true scholars in the history faculty. So this is sort of my um, same for my holiday snaps. Um, so I'm a, a macroeconomist. I my most of the stuff that I do is on things like monetary policy, exchange rate policy, fiscal policy, kind of international stuff. Um, typically with central banks. And I spent last year um, setting up a research program and working as an advisor in the central bank of Tanzania. But what I want to talk about is, is uh, some more sort of broad brush ideas about, about sort of growth and transformation in, in Tanzania. Um, and it's quite, quite timely because, um, as you know, uh, or you may, you may not know, but uh, Sunday there was a general election in Tanzania. Um, and uh, I think it's rather telling that nobody knows there was a general election in Tanzania. Uh, it says something about its history of relatively peaceful political transition or non-transition, as the case may be. But the president, uh, President Kikwete, is uh, entering his second term, assuming he's re-elected, and I think he probably is going to be elected. And he is agonizing at great length about the process of transformation in, in Tanzania. And so here are some, some thoughts. They're not completely random, uh, because underneath this is a, is a research project that I'm just about to start uh, on with um, a colleague from, from Yale. Um, so the, the starting point, Tanzania is a dreadfully poor country. Um, and here's, here's the way in which economists will typically uh, look at some of, these, uh, some of these numbers. So I've just, Tanzania, the UK, because we're here, and there's Argentina, sort of representative emerging market uh, economy. So I've just given you uh, kind of five standard indicators on, on dimensions of, of, of poverty, in a sense. The top line is income, income poverty. So per capita income, 2009. Um, if you take the world as a whole, um, it's around just under 9,000 US dollars. Um, Tanzania, 500. The UK, about $40,000 average. And Argentina, something like 7,500. So 500 dollars per capita per year is not very much. Um, and that, not surprisingly, translates into, this is a, a notion of the global poverty line. So the World Bank tries to uh, construct comparisons of, of um, poverty or deprivation across, across the countries of the world. Um, and one of the measures they use is the proportion of the percentage of the population that are living uh, on or below $1.25 a day. Um, uh, so uh, if you look at Tanzania, more than a third of the population and uh, uh, almost three quarters of the rural population uh, is living on or below that poverty line. It's, it's, that is dirt poor by any, by any definition. Um, it's important from what I'm going to say in a moment that this is, uh, this is so high in the rural area. We don't have comparable figures with, with OECD countries because um, countries like the UK because in industrialized countries we don't measure poverty in an absolute sense but in a relative sense. We measure it relative to median income rather than on some absolute purchasing. But if you look, start to look at the social indicators, there are the arguably 
uh, as frightening. The under five mortality rate, these are deaths per 1,000 live births before the age of five, and the difference is absolutely staggering um, between the UK as a representative OECD country and, and, and Argentina. Access to adequate sanitation, and adequate is not terribly impressive, it just means sufficient to, uh, to limit the spread of fecal-borne infection. And only a quarter of the population have access to adequate sanitation. And then the final one, this is the proportion of girls that actually go on to secondary school. So less than half of, of uh, girls in Tanzania go on to, to secondary school. So it's a dreadfully poor and uh, almost scandalously poor uh, environment. Why scandalously poor? Well, one of the things is it's, it's a, the potential in a country like Tanzania is really very, very substantial. And I should have done this at the beginning, just so that you know what we're talking about here. Um, Tanzania, on just below the equator, East Africa. It has this very important strategic uh, location. Um, it has one of the, if not the greatest, certainly one of the most beautiful deep water ports in, in the world, in, in Dar es Salaam, around about here. It's pointing uh, east towards the, the new center of gravity of the global economy, and it is potentially the gateway um, to the world for the Great Lakes region, and in particular, Eastern Congo DRC. As you know, or as you may know, it's actually incredibly difficult to get from here to here. That's in terms of uh, the economic geography of Zaire, or of DRC as it's now called. Um, if you're the economic activity around this, this Eastern DRC area, uh, the natural directions to move in this direction. So you've got Uganda, Kenya, Rwanda, Burundi, Tanzania, and this this very favourable uh, location. Um, so favourable location, fantastic natural resources, um, gemstones, gold, oil, gas, uh, pretty favourable climate on average, and arguably some of the most stunning tourist natural resources the world knows. You think of uh, Jaro, Serengeti, and all the rest. It's also got a remarkably stable political history. That is a story in itself, a really, really interesting story about, about the fact that, that Tanzania is a, it's a very stable single party, well, not de facto single party state, but a very stable political structure. It has been since independence in the early 60s. Um, and certainly since the mid 1990s, has had a very impressive macroeconomic record. High average economic growth, low inflation, um, generally scoring well by international criteria. The big challenge is how do you take this, this potential and turn it into something that is going to lead to growth and prosperity. And growth and prosperity here means creating the conditions for employment and income generation that start to address some of those, those pretty critical uh, measures. Before. I'm going to step to one side a little bit and just talk very briefly about a, a kind of standard way in which economists think about economic transformation and growth. And quite a number of the issues um, that came up in the previous presentation are here as well. Um, and I, I'm not sure I'm going to apologize, but I'm just going to observe that economists tend to think of this in a relatively ahistorical fashion. And, uh, um, but if you ask an economist how does development occur, they might say something like this, that one of the key things 
is about labour movement. It's essentially about harnessing innovation in agriculture and leading to the movement of people off, off the land. So if you look across uh, global history, what you see is that employment shares in agriculture fall sharply. So the number of people employed in the land falls sharply. The share of agricultural output and total economic output falls, but not as fast. The simple arithmetic of that says that those that remain in agriculture are more productive. And that essentially the labor that is released from agriculture, now you may, you may debate the use of the language here, released from agriculture, is absorbed in sort of high productivity, more capital-intensive urban employment, typically manufacturing and services, although it could be um, uh, in natural resources, <coughs> supplying export markets, in, certainly in the modern variant of this, this story of, of uh, take-off. Agricultural productivity is, is central to this, because it drives down real food prices. In other words, the price of food relative to, to wages in the modern sector. And that declining real price of food uh, means that, that wages are, are competitive. They're um, internationally competitive. And that's the kind of the story that, a, that an economist will tell you about processes of growth and, um, and takeoff. And this might be, if you ran this through the kind of 20th century history of Korea, for example, this would be a classic example of what was going on um, in, in Korea. It's happening, maybe not universally, but a, across um, India, and it is the story of China, as we think about China today. It's about agricultural productivity, the releasing labor into capital-intensive, export-oriented manufacturing activities, um, and that's what's fueling growth. Now, this story um, in Tanzania is seen to be exceptionally important, and certainly the, the, the president would, uh, uh, would sign up, essentially, to this, to this story as, as his way of seeing how, how Tanzania might develop. And one of the most important things, certainly from the, the president's view, is that Tanzania is still at a very early stage in the demographic transition. Um, so uh, there's a huge bulge in the population pyramid that is uh, um, going to be a lot of unemployed labor if it can't be absorbed in, in a fast-growing economy. Um, and more importantly, it's a huge bulge of political pressure and political threat to, uh, um, to the elite. So the president is not surprisingly very concerned about this. So there's a huge focus in, in the, the kind of uh, debate about economic transition and transformation on generating employment, generating employment for this young uh, and still rapidly growing economy. Um, so it's the generation sufficient employment. And it all boils down to the kind of problem that, in a sense, all the bits are in place and why hasn't the structural transformation occurred in Tanzania? Why, why do we not see more evidence of the movement off the land and into, uh, um, into, into modern employment? What's, what's stopping it? And uh, there's a tendency to look to agriculture itself as the source of the problem. Um, it makes sort of sense. You've got three quarters of the 
40 million people in Tanzania living in rural areas. 80% uh, of the population work in agriculture. But here's, here's the killer. So you've got 80% of the population working in agriculture. Share of agriculture and output is about 45%, which means that labor in agriculture is about one-fifth as productive as in the rest of the economy. If you could somehow move that, that, that labor uh, from low productivity activities into high productivity activities, that's what's going to generate and drive the growth in, uh, in incomes and through incomes in, in the prospect for uh, improved conditions. Um, now, there's a tendency to focus on... Here's just another fact. These are the... Cereal yields, a measure of the productivity of agriculture. That's the average in Tanzania would be to get at 1,200 kilograms of, this is grain, so maize, per hectare. Brazil, as a comparison, 4,000 kilos per hectare. Typical yields, if you look at high productivity agriculture in Europe, it might be up as, as high as 7,000. Now, the problems in agriculture are not a lack of knowledge. Um, there's no shortage of transfers of ideas. The green revolution that, that uh, uh, occurred in India could, the ideas and the understanding of the green revolution are, are, are there. Um, and there are huge resources being spent on extension services, on input subsidies, on research. And it's not obvious that if you're looking for the problem to, to solve the problems of agriculture, low productivity and a lack of movement of the land, that actually the problem lies with agriculture itself. And what we're going to be doing in this research project is look at um, more an issue of economic geography and the issue of transport and transport costs. And the question, so I'll, uh, in a moment I'll come to, to the kind of what arguably is the intellectual argument that we're using. Um, but I want to give you one of my favorite facts that we came across. Uh, in our story. So in AD 350, the Romans left behind 15,000 kilometers of paved road in, in Britain. And that translates to a density of about 60 kilometers. And today, Tanzania has 45 kilometers per thousand. So we're about uh, 2,000 years behind in terms of uh, the capacity of the road infrastructure to um, service a given population. Very, very low road density. What that means is that a very small share of the population are within access, within two kilometers here, of any road. So distance to market is enormous. Um, and not only are distances physically large to markets because of the lack of roads, but the cost of moving goods is astoundingly high. So one of the things that we did to start this project off was to look at uh, unit costs of transporting grain. So what we try and measure is the cost of moving um, a metric ton of grain 100 kilometers along the road. And so for a reference, we looked at the US. So this is the Midwest in the US. It costs 28 cents to move a ton of grain 100 kilometers by road. It costs... Um, around about 15 cents if you manage to put it on a barge and send it down to Mississippi, by far the, the cheapest way of moving grain. 
the comparable figures for Tanzania, the same ton of grain to move it, the same 100 kilometers, are between 9 and $15 per ton. So 30 to 40 times more expensive to move. The most basic of foods, grain, uh, across the country. It's stunningly expensive. And the problem is, partly the roads and partly the, the policy environment around the roads. So we think, here's, a, here's a kind of what we think road traffic and uh, haulage in, in uh, Tanzania might look like. And sadly, the reality looks more like, oh, no, this is another one. This is a nice um, kind of slightly bucolic picture of what road transport might look like. But the reality is much more like this. And sadly, like this. Road transport is very, very expensive. It's intermittent, and it's very dangerous. Um, uh, and I'll come back to some of these costs and dangers in, in a moment. Um, and let me try and turn this from a little bit of chit-chat into a notion of theory and what, what economists might think is going on. So what's the problem with high transport costs, high, high transport costs? It creates the incentives to locate close to where food is grown. It's, if it's going to cost a lot to move food, people don't move. People stay close to where food is grown. The consequence of this can be shown in this neat little picture. And here's a, a diversion for, for two minutes. There is um, a remarkable empirical pattern around the world, all countries, all times, pretty much. And it's known as Zipf's Law, or it's a, in statistics, it's called a Pareto distribution. But Zipf was a, was a linguist, in fact, but a professor at Harvard. And here's what Zipf's Law does. It says that if you rank all the cities in a country or in any sub-district of a country by size and you plot the log of the city size against the log of their rank, they will lie along a straight line which was a, has a slope of minus one. And if you do this for the US, if you do it for Europe, if you do it for um, cities in China, in India, in Argentina, in Brazil, you get this population lying along the line. That's quite a, it's a, just an interesting empirical regularity. Now, I don't want to go into all the many theories that try and explain why that would be the case, but there are many theories. But one of the most striking things, if you do this for uh, somewhere like Tanzania, but it's also true if you do the same little exercise for other countries in sub-Saharan Africa, is this big deviation here, the lack of secondary cities. That typically, you'll have a big, this is Dar es Salaam, 2.3 million people in the urban conurbation of Dar es Salaam. And the next largest urban settlement in Tanzania is Arusha, which is only ten, a tenth of the size. This massive gap between the biggest city and the secondary cities. Essentially, this bit of the curve here is just underpopulated. So there aren't enough secondary cities, uh, uh, regional urban centers. Why does that matter? Well, it's 
it matters because of forces of agglomeration, essentially. There's um, very limited urban migration. And migration is not necessarily from the urban areas up to Dar es Salaam. It's into centers of concentration, human concentration, where certainly as economists, we identify the effects of growth, the returns to scale, the increasing returns to economic activity. Why are we not getting that, that um, migration? It's the price of food. It's expensive to migrate because food prices in urban centers are very high. And since it's food prices that essentially underpin wage rates, higher food prices mean high wages and less capacity to generate the profits and the growth that's going to, in turn, generate the demand. And these food prices are high essentially for transport reasons. Now, again, as an economist, you say, well, if you've got high domestic food prices, how are you going to deal with that? Well, one of the, I made that point, one of the obvious things is through trade. International trade is a, is a way of um, trying to bring down food prices. But the problem with the transport structure is not just it costs a lot to get food from domestic, market, domestic producers to domestic markets, it costs a huge amount to get them from world markets to domestic markets. So international trade can help a little, but not very much, because the domestic price of imported food is also extremely high because of, uh, because of transport costs. So, the high level of transport costs, and I'll finish in about two minutes here, acts as a break on this process of structural transformation. It is a cost barrier that stops the exploitation of this high growth in employment and incomes that is going to be the fuel to, to essentially realize the potentials in the Tanzanian economy. Um, there are lots of other factors as well, but we're arguing this is an important one. Now, just given the nature of the place, transport costs will always be high in Tanzania. It's a big, big country and distance matters. Um, and on top of it, all the fuel is imported, so, so there is a, a genuine cost. But there are lots of areas where transport costs could be substantially lower. The obvious one is the quality of the roads, the pictures that I, I showed. So you get very, very high operating costs by international standards. Maintenance costs are outrageously high. The cost of accidents and pilferage is, is just um, uh, quite astonishingly um, Tanzania is about 20th most dangerous place in the world to drive. Um, so, vehicle uh, fatalities per 100,000 population are in the order of 35 or so. The worst, most dangerous place in the world to, to drive is uh, Afghanistan, uh, closely followed by Iraq, and then followed, interestingly enough, by Egypt. Um, there, the fatality rate is about 40 per 100,000 population. Here in the UK, UK is a remarkably safe place to, to drive. The rate is about five per 100,000. Um, but it's even worse in Tanzania because if you adjust for the number of vehicles on the road, it's just frightening. In, in the UK, there's about one fatality for every 10, per year for every 10,000 vehicles on the road. 
there are 300 fatalities per 10,000 vehicles on the road in Tanzania. And that doesn't include pedestrian fatalities, which are even higher. Now, in a purely economic sense, that's, that has a, a well-defined cost. But accidents and breakdown have other costs. The pilferage rates on cargoes are enormously high. The in, drives up the insurance costs, drives up the costs of doing business more generally. There is a classic problem called the return load problem. You can go off to Tabora to bring back grain to Dar es Salaam, but there's not much to take back. There's half the journeys are empty on the roads. So that doubles your, your unit cost of, of transport. Um, there's enormous problems of monopoly and uh, corruption in the transport and distribution sector. So partly the regulatory problem, if you've travelled in this part of the world and you come to a Weybridge or a, a district checkpoint, you'll see traffic jams that don't move all the way. And why are they not moving? Well, it's partly because it takes time to process the payments that make traffic move. So there's a, there's a big regulatory challenge. Um, and the problem with that is that it means the answer is not simply just build more roads. Just build more roads. Um, because building more roads may actually just create increased profits that go in the hands of um, the middlemen. Now, that will improve the income of them, but it's not obvious that it's going to improve the income uh, distribution. So my last slide, what, what it, is it that we're, we're doing as... Uh, in this research. Um, so there's a whole set of questions about if you are going to build more roads, well, where? What kind of roads? Is it trunk roads? Do you want to connect your major urban centres or is it the last mile, getting the roads, closing that two kilometres from the market problem? Are you worried about the cost of international transport or domestic transport? Should, it be, should you be spending your time and investing your scarce resources in port, um, or in railways, or in roads, etc. Um, but the problem is, for economists and for, for the rest of us, um, is that we don't really know very much yet. Um, so the civil engineers will come along and say, the answer is simple, just build more roads. Well, they would say that, wouldn't they? Um, but the reality is we know very little about how these markets function, how they markets function, how they fail in transport and distribution. Um, and as a result, we really don't understand the structure of prices and costs, etc. And this is where, hopefully over the next year or so, maybe two years, I'll be spending some of my time thinking about how we, we've got a team of researchers trying to understand some of these features about how markets function in, in Tanzania. It's more general in Tanzania, but in Tanzania. Um, and use this to then play into what is my research strength, which is to, to look at mathematical models, simulation models, to try and understand the interrelationship between patterns of trade and migration on the one hand, and the provision of infrastructure and roads. And then the third element is how we, how we finance these through public policy interventions, how we think about, and this gets back to my own research specialization, how we think about fiscal policy, public investment, and policy regulation in the areas uh, of, of transport. And so we end up with this um, very exciting research project, 
but a really major, what I think is a really major public policy challenge because if we cannot get to a position where real food costs decline, then all this ambition about exploiting the resources of uh, someone like Tanzania are just going to sit there on to the advantage of no one. That um, perhaps the most central issue is about improving the functioning of these markets and that turns hugely on the cost of transport. Okay, let me just stop. Thank <laughs> you.